you realize that about a year from now, we will literally be able to say that hindsight is 2020. That's not original with me, although I really wish it was. But hindsight really is 2020, isn't it? It really is a good thing and a, and, and a great blessing that we have to be able to look at things in the past and to learn from them. And particularly God's Word and the story of the Old Testament and the events that take place in history leading up to the coming of Christ. Over the past few months, we have been studying First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, well, we're in First Kings, and First and Second Chronicles in the Wednesday night adult auditorium class. And I'm thankful for all that have been able to be in there and continue to be in there. And sometimes you just have to kind of stop and look back at what's taken place. Extreme tension, uneasiness, and strained nerves. That describes the scene in 1 Kings chapter 11. Just a short time before, we see God's people raised to the heights of the kingdoms of the earth at that time in wealth and riches, and power. But now, after 70 years of unity through two kings, the nation is in turmoil so much that a division occurs that will never be fully mended. And chapter 12 of 1 Kings changes the tone of the rest of 1 and 2 Kings completely changes the tone of what we're going to see uh, from this point forward. Revolt and division result from sin and oppression. And the question is, what happens when the kingdom of God divides? When God-glorifying living turns into Rampant idolatry. The next few chapters of 1 Kings displays some drastic differences. And about the only way to describe it is chaos. What we will be doing this evening, first we are going to notice a contrast between the United Kingdom, what we usually call uh, the United Kingdom of Israel, and then the Divided Kingdom of Judah and Israel. We are going to uh, uh, look um, at, at, at this, this um, contrast and, and, and how it differs from, from what it used to be to what it is at, at this time. And, and then second, we're going to zoom in from that, that, that contrast and give a bird's eye view to the kings and their actions in this section leading up to about chapter 17, possibly 18. And then finally, we're going to notice two unchangeable truths to remember during these kinds of times. So let's think about the contrast 
From 1 Samuel through 1 Kings chapter 11, we read of three men that are anointed by God as king of Israel. Remember, Saul, who was then rejected, and then David, and then ultimately David, uh, David's son, Solomon. And these three kings reign about 40 years each with a little bit of overlap, uh, with, uh, especially with um, uh, David and Saul. But during this time, there is a little bit of turmoil and a little bit of unrest and a back and forth between David and Saul. And then when Saul dies, the kingdom would be established into Saul's or into, into David's hand. And things start to really look up. The, 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 the kingdom is established and, 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 and reigning in all of the tribes to, to be united together. And that really comes to a peak in Solomon's day. His wisdom and his wealth continued this unification and, and, and brought the nation to a whole new stage, a whole new level on the world stage. And yet these three kings take up a, a pretty decent space in, in, in your Old Testament. But what you have after... In just 55 years, that's chapter 12 through 18 of 1 Kings, 55 years, we are introduced to a series of 10 kings. 55 years. You have Rehoboam, Abijah, and Asa in the southern kingdom of Judah, and then in the north, you have Jeroboam, Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and then Ahab. What a difference one division can make. From, from a, few, a few decades, over a hundred years even... Of a few rulers and one nation to a back and forth over and over again of kings that really don't live up to God's expectation of a king. But these first 55 years are really all about turmoil. And what happens to a nation after they follow through with, with, with what Solomon ended up doing with his idolatry and setting up all of these idols because you see all these other kings end up following suit. So we have this contrast between uh, 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 leadership that, that, that really, even though there was some instability, had a lot more of a, of, of a stable uh, um, time to it than what comes next. But I want us to go through these kings just very shortly, very quickly, and notice what they have done. And they are up on the screen for you because there's a lot of them, and it's easy to get lost in the weeds sometimes. So look at First Kings 
First Kings, and we're going to be going through uh, uh, from chapter uh, 12 and forward. You have Jeroboam being spoken of in 12 through 14, and Rehoboam uh, also in 12 and in 14. Uh, beginning with Rehoboam and the decisions that he makes that ultimately leads to the division of the nation and the, uh, the tribes turning away from Judah uh, because of the uh, forced labor that Rehoboam tries to enforce. And you have, in fact, somebody else behind this. Notice in verse... 21, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home for this thing is from me. See, the division was promised by God because of the sins that would take place in chapter 11 with Solomon turning away from the Lord. And so although you have this, this sin and this turmoil, God is utilizing it for something else, and we'll see that in just a few moments. But you have Rehoboam and, and, and his reign. If you look at cha- uh, 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 21, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all of their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. With Rehoboam's reign, he, he, he not only threatened the people with slavery, causing the nation to divide, but instituted old worship from old times, from old idols. Contrast that with Jeroboam, who in chapter 12 institutes new worship in new places at new times by new people to a new idol, pointing to calves that he had made. Behold your gods. Sounds very familiar. To something that takes place in Exodus. But Jeroboam would not only institute this new worship, he would try to kill God's prophet in chapter 13, a man of God. He would then try to trick a different prophet in chapter 14. Try to lead him astray so that he could get a good report. Jeroboam and Rehoboam would fight their entire king, uh, their entire reigns against each other. Rehoboam's son, Abijam, 
walked in all the sins that his father had done before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Chapter 15 and verse 3. In fact, there is something very unique about this idea of the heart in First and Second Kings, and you ought to look at that uh, through the whole text, but especially uh, uh, with, with, their, uh, with the kings. In fact, notice... When we read about Jeroboam setting up this new religion, in verse 26 of chapter 12, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. If you look at verse 33, he went up to make the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 18th month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Jeroboam followed his own heart to establish worship to his own gods so that the people's heart would not turn away from him and go back to Judah and ultimately to God in his mind. Now Rehoboam's son, Abijam, had a heart that was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Chapter 15 and verse 3. And just as there was... um, um, fighting and warring between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, now there is war between Jeroboam and Abijam. And then finally you get to Asa for the southern kingdom in chapter 15. And Asa seems to be the first good king since Solomon and perhaps since David. Look at 1 Kings 15. In verse 2, for Abijah, Abijah, he reigned, Abijah, he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. He walked in all the sins of his father, did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David his father. But in verse 9, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother uh, because she had made an abominable image uh, for Asherah. And Asa cut down the image and bur- uh, burned it at the brook Kidron, but the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Although Asa did not take the uh, abominations away in the outskirts of, of Judah, he did do a whole lot of good to try to bring the people back to God and get rid of some of that cult worship. But what you see with Asa... Although his reign was good in a lot of ways, it does show a a unique contrast in Solomon's reign. 
And that when Solomon lived, he had authority such that that when other nations, when he would make agreements with other nations, he could kind of not keep them. And he had really no, uh, uh, no one to try to stop him from doing what he was doing. Other nations came to him for help. But now with Asa, you see the difference in a nation of just a few years where he has to bargain with silver and gold out of the temple to get other nations to help him. And he does this instead of calling on God. It really is a time of uh, turmoil. And of course, war would continue between the northern and southern kingdom with Israel's third king reigning, Baasha. Now, Baasha is reigning because he assassinates Jeroboam's successor, his son Nadab, uh, the first of six assassinations that you would end up reading through First uh, uh, and Second Kings in the northern kingdom. And you would think that, well, maybe Baasha killed Nadab because of the sinful leader that Nadab was. Look at chapter 15 and verse 27. 1 Kings 15 and verse 27. Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege at Gibbethon. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. (coughs) And as soon as he was king, he killed the house of Jeroboam. He left the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin. And because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. So it almost seems like Baasha is killing Nadab because of the sins of Nadab and his father. But notice verse 33, in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and the sin in which he had made Israel to sin. He did the exact same thing. Lived the same kind of way. Worshipped the same false idols and led the people astray. In fact, the word of the Lord, if you read chapter 16 and verse 1, came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Baasha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who, uh, of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. You will have no rest and no continuance. Baasha's son Elah would become king after his reign and would last two years before being assassinated by Zimri, who set himself up as king and reigned a total of seven days, before Israel made Omri commander 
of the army of Israel king. And Zimri, upon finding this out, verse 18 of chapter 16, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. But notice again this comment, because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. And in fact, you have Omri reigning, but not all Israel would have it that way. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of uh, Ganath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, So Tibni died and Omri became king. How do you suppose Tibni died? (coughs) First you have a civil war that divides a nation and now you have a civil war of one of the nations that is divided that results in Omri becoming king. Omri's reign is summed up in verse 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and all the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger their idols. And finally, we get to Ahab. 1 Kings 16 and verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Notice that, more than all who were before him. So all those kings that were before Ahab couldn't match him in the evil and the sin that he had. But not only that, look at verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What the text says is it says that that he did more than all the sins of the kings before him. And then the very next thing that it compares that with is something that that it says. and, And if that was a light thing, he married Jezebel. Now, it, it is unfortunate that people sometimes marry bad people. And you don't find out till after. But for something like this to take place, for the Bible to simply say that, and as if all this had been a light thing, comparing all of this idolatry and all of this murder and all of this fighting to not being as bad as marrying Jezebel, that's frightening. But it's not just that. Verse 32, Baal worship is instituted. Verse 33, again, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In 34, he built Jericho, costing him. Notice verse 34, in the days Hiel of Bethel built Jericho, costing Hiel both his firstborn... And 
his youngest. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. When you look at just the first 55 years following the division of the kingdom, it's pretty bad. The, the, the rulers were steeped in idolatry, and although you have out of all of these people one, Asa, in the southern king who had done some good things, the text still says that he didn't take away those high places. When a nation divides, when a kingdom divides, you can almost guarantee it's going to be because of some form of idolatry. And you have these leaders that really don't last a very long time. Uh, Asa lasts a pretty decent time compared to these others, but you have uh, 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 murder and assassination taking place. And a, a, a guy reigning for seven days. He's just a blip on the radar of God's punishment for a nation that has turned away from him. What a contrast to the relatively quiet days of Solomon and the final years of David. Imagine living at a time like that where you routinely see your king assassinated every few years. You are at war with your own family. Sin is rampant. Morality is failing. The righteous are hated. And idolatry is adored. Thankfully, we don't have anything like that today. This nation that God had promised to Abraham, who ultimately the the seed of Abraham would come in Jesus, hindsight is 2020, and how thankful we can see that. But right now, it is in turmoil. We may know the end of the story, but the people who lived during these dark times, they didn't. A couple unchangeable truths to remember when chaos ensues, when the foundations are shaken. When you're going through a time of turmoil like this, where idolatry is rampant, Number one, God is still in control and he keeps his promises. God is still in control and he keeps his promises. I would encourage you to go back and read this section uh, in full simply to read how many times you see God acting through this set of unfortunate circumstances because he is is alive, active, every single chapter. And and In fact, let's just look at a couple of these. Uh, Notice chapter 12. There we go. 1 Kings 12. 
and verse 22. We've already read this, but notice again. But the word of, the Lord, uh, word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah, and Benjamin and the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. The entire nation is now dividing against itself and going in two different directions. (coughs) And a single word from the Lord stops them from fighting each other. In the very next chapter, notice verse 1, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord of Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. This would be a few hundred years later. Over a hundred years later, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign to them the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king had heard it, saying the man of, uh, saying of the man of God, when he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign uh, of the, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, "Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me." Notice he says, "The Lord your God." And pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him. And he became as it was before. You have God by a simple word stopping a civil war. You have God by a simple word and a simple act of protection of his prophet stopping a king who has rejected him and is serving idols now asking for the grace of God to be restored and sure enough God does it in chapter 14 notice verse 5 verse 4 Jeroboam's wife did so she arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age and the Lord said to Ahijah behold the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son for he is sick Thus and thus shall you say to her. If you look at verse 17, Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. <coughs> Next chapter, verse 15, uh, chapter 15 and verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded in all his days, all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. 
God continued to protect. See, God is in control. And he remembers his promises. Look at the very next chapter, chapter 16. And verse 12. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of, of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord of God of Israel to anger with their idols. Let's do one more from the same chapter. 1 Kings 16 and verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua 6, 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed be the Lord, uh, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and builds a city Jericho. At the cost of the firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of the youngest son shall he set up its gates. God is in control and he keeps his promises. And this is perhaps seen most powerfully in chapter 17 and 18 when Elijah and Ahab go head to head. And, and really, it's a battle between the idol Baal and Yahweh. And that leads us into the second truth very quickly. That in times of shaken foundations and difficulties and frustrations and chaotic rule, God still cares. Not only is he in control and mindful of his promises, but he still cares. You see, in dramatic fashion, God shows us that, that no matter the times, he is in control and he cares for his people. God would stop the rain and consume a soaking wet sacrifice with fire. Contrast that with Baal who is the storm god to bring the rains so that crops can grow. And also the god of lightning. No rain, no fire from Baal. Yahweh feeds a family and restores the life of a son, but when you look at Baal... And in the, 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 the idol worship of that time and, and how Baal was honored, the idea was that Baal had to be resurrected each year. Not so with God. And all of this takes place on Baal's home turf. Because God is God of the heavens and the earth. And all of it is his. Look at 1 Kings 18 and verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. To whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. 
and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench in the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill the four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, O Yahweh. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that all this people may know that you, O Lord, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back that you've turned their hearts back. Then fire fell from the Lord. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. See, in times of shaken foundations, chaotic rule, And when the people's hearts have turned away from God, God's heart has not turned away from his people. And this drought that started for the purpose of turning the people's hearts back, it's ended. Because they have. We do not live in Israel, but we do live in a divided nation and sadly sometimes a divided church. We do not currently see the kind of violence and the shifting power uh, uh, over every few years as the Israelites did, but we see a whole lot of turmoil and a whole lot of gods that are taking the place of Yahweh, of Jehovah. We must remember that God is still in control. That God still keeps his promises. And God still cares. In fact, tonight God still does give the promise of salvation through his son Christ, doesn't he? And through faith in him and turning to him and away from sin and living for him beginning with baptism, you too can hold God's promise. He cares for you. Can we help you tonight? If so, come as we stand and sing this song.